One fundamental question that we perhaps have to ask ourselves, given the inevitability of death, is are we simply amusing ourselves to death? And I mean that seriously. Are we just engaged in a process and series of distractions and amusement and pastimes which is going to take us through to that inevitability? Or are we engaged in something meaningful? Are we engaged in some kind of journey through life where we're learning something and garnering meaning as we go along? So that's the question. Are we amusing ourselves to death? And in the tradition, the notion of a human rebirth, and I'm talking very much about traditional Buddhism here, the notion of a human rebirth is in fact a very rare thing. Um, in the Tibetan tradition, for example, it's referred to as the precious human rebirth, um, considered to be something extremely rare that one gets. And this is if one believes, obviously, in the fundamental sort of metaphysics of rebirth. That getting a human birth is an extremely difficult thing. Um, there's a kind of image that's used often in Tibetan Buddhism of a kind of yoke or a bit something like a bit like a life boy floating on the ocean and a, and a blind turtle that surfaces once every couple of hundred years surfacing and putting its head through the yoke. <laughs> As you can see, it's a kind of convoluted way of saying it's difficult to get a rebirth. Now, if we don't want to take that route, there is psychological understanding of what's going on here. And perhaps what I'll do is I'll give you the traditional formulation and before we add what I would call a psychological interpretation of this. Sankara. Hopefully this is familiar to you by now. For having spoken about it quite a number of times this week. Circularity. Bounded circularity. A wheel which is, has as its predominant tone dukkha. It has its dominant tone unsatisfaction. So anything that occurs within Sangsara is going to be Dukkha. And traditional accounts of Buddhism, which is actually really traditional Indian cosmology as much as anything else, talks about six states where one can be reborn within Dukkha, within Sangsara, or with, as I say, Dukkha as being the kind of dominant tone to those six states. Now the difference between the Buddhist conception and traditional Indian cosmology is that one realm is usually placed outside of Sangsara and it's placed within Sangsara in the Buddhist viewpoint. And this is the realm of the gods. And the gods are considered to be the highest rebirth. And I'm giving you a very traditional account. The highest rebirth within Sangsara. You can actually find many Buddhists in traditional countries saying, please let me be reborn as a god. Because <laughs> yeah, gods have everything. They have extremely long lives and they live these wonderful existences and the text has described them wearing most beautiful clothes of silks and things like this and they live this very precious existence and I said they have these incredibly long lives, much longer than human life but of course they're going to die as well. This is the difference between the traditional Indian conception and the Buddhist one, that the gods themselves die at some point. I always find it very amusing. I'm very fond of repeating this a little bit because I read in one of the texts it says, 
when the gods are about to die and, and if you write you've reached the top of samsara you've reached the absolute pinnacle of samsara it's in any way down after that you can only go down in rebirth but when the gods it says in this one particular text when the gods are about to die and um, go into another rebirth cycle and it says they start to smell and nobody wants to talk to them (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was so beautifully indicative of a metaphor so much that goes on in often human life (laughs) so that's the pinnacle and it's considered to be one of the fortunate rebirths they're actually divided up these six forms of rebirth into three fortunate and three unfortunate so that's one of the fortunate realms the very pinnacle as I say and then there's something called the Asuras usually translated as Titans which is actually awful translation or Jealous Gods which is actually more accurate Asuras are actually demons in traditional Indian mythology <coughs> um, Asura is actually from Sanskrit which is a, a kind of conju- is a, a contraction of the Sanskrit which is Asuria which means the sun doesn't shine on them because Surya is the sun it's without the sun um, and they're always longing for what the gods have got so this is why they're jealous gods you see. they want what the gods have got and the gods have got everything um, and even in the iconography you find a little dis- well, a, a, a tree basically which has its roots in the realms of the Asuras and sadly all of its roots in the realms of the gods Again, I don't think needs to stretch the imagination to see the metaphor within that too much. And then one of the other fortunate rebirths is the human realm, but I'm not going to go into that at the present moment. Let's take the lower rebirth. The lower rebirth. Well, the first one we automatically recognise, and other than the human realm, in terms of actual rebirth, possible rebirth, um, the only one we possibly see directly is the realm of the animal, the animal realm. And the animal realm in traditional um, Buddhist conceptions, again, you're talking about a tradition which is speaking 2,500 years ago. The realm of the animals is a realm which is one of blind instinct and tremendous amount of persecution. Um, you've only got to think, actually, in the, even in the modern world, of the millions of animals that must die each day. Obviously, a lot for human consumption, given all the countries over the world, but also animals killing each other for food as the German philosopher Schopenhauer said when I look around the world I see everything eating everything else yeah. and that's the kind of animal realm that you have so it's one of blind instinct it's a blind instinctual drive you know, to, procre- to procreation and eating and everything and so that's the animal realm and then we have the realm of the praetors I like the praetors I think the praetors are great uh, the praetors are <laughs> the praetors are usually described as figures which have these enormous stomachs these tiny little thin scraggy necks and a little pinhole mouth and they have endless craving for food and drink and as you can see it's not a very good recipe for satisfying is it? <laughs> having a tiny pinhole mouth and a little scraggy neck because uh, they can never get enough food to satisfy the longing and the hunger and so really what this represents is, is endless desire something we've seen and I've talked about quite a bit desire that can really not find fulfilment in any way 
And then right at the bottom, the lowest, if you like, the, the worst possible rebirth you can have is into the hell realm. Um, but the difference here between the kind of Christian conceptions of the hell realm and the Buddhist conceptions of the hell realm is the hell realm here isn't anybody judging you or putting you there. You just end up there by your own deeds. And in fact, it says again in the text, and even on the iconography, sometimes in very good depictions of this, you have Yama, who's the god of death, and he sits in the hell realm. And what he does is he holds up a mirror. And each person who enters the hell realm, what punishment they get depends on what they see in the mirror. In other words, how they judge themselves. So it's really about, in other words, the judgments that we make on ourselves, the kinds of things that, in the way which I'm suggesting we move away from, this kind of carping self-criticism, uh, we create our own hells, in other words, uh, being another way of looking at them. Finally, of course, there is the, the precious human rebirth, if one takes that to that phrase. There is the precious human rebirth, which is the realm of possibility, not actuality. The possibility for liberation, all of the other realms, for various reasons, I'll just quickly go into it in a minute, all of the other realms have a lesser possibility for liberation than the human realm. It's not impossible, but it's much more difficult out of the other realms. And this is because of the possibility of the gaining of insight and understanding, and also for the development of compassion and kindness within that realm. Possibility, not actuality, remember. And so in other words, it's really beginning to realise the potentiality of our human condition, what it means to be human. Now all of the other realms obviously have problems in gaining liberation. Again, this is a traditional conception because the gods have everything. They haven't got much motivation really. Um, they don't actually realise that they're going to die because they supposedly live these enormously long lives. Um, the Asuras are too busy, busy struggling. I would call them the upwardly mobile, the Asuras. <laughs> <laughs> they're trying to get to the top, really, <laughs> where all the others are. Um, yeah, the animal realm, because they're surrendered to blind instinct or captured by blind instinct, um, they have very little, in other words, insight or understanding, compassion is not something that's generally there in the animal realm in this conception. The praetors, of course, driven by their desire, again, are endlessly just trying to fill themselves um, rather than actually um, trying to gain any insight or understanding. Of course, in the hell realm, you're captured in the hell realms and you're torturing yourself in the hell realm. Now that's the traditional conception. Now one other way of looking at this, which actually is a very valid way of looking at it, because it's there within a whole textual set of material called the other Dhamma, which is the higher Dhamma, um, which is part of the Pali Canon, and it's also part of other traditions as well. Um, the other way of interpreting this, of course, is psychologically. In fact, what we've got here is a beautiful psychological map, in some way. Now I, I thought I was very acute when I was a kind of young student of this. And when I was first told this by the teacher I was studying with, <coughs> I kind of went, ah, I know people like that. You know, I know somebody who's a bit godlike and got this egotism of the god and thinks everything's going their way and somebody's striving to get to the top. And there's that person I know who's a bit animalistic in their behaviour, just driven by their instincts and their kind of you know, desire for sex or you know, eating or whatever it is. 
and then I know people who are just filled with this endless desire and trying to fill themselves in some way or another. And, of course, I know people who are depressive in the depths of hell for whatever reason that they put themselves in with this carping self-criticism and self-judgment that they place out there. And I went to the teacher and I said, is that the way it is? Are these kind of character types that you've got here? And he looked at me with total disgust <laughs> and said to me, no, that's a picture of you on one day. <laughs> with the one thing being how often are you human in the day? How often do you fulfil your potentiality for wisdom and compassion, for movement towards liberation? Because that is what is offered by the human realm, which is not really there. Which is why I opened with that question, are we amusing ourselves to death? Are we simply spading off the inevitable by distracting ourselves continuously, continuously? Is that what we're doing? One of the things that you find, of course, when you come on retreat like this, is just how much of our lives are filled up with distraction. Just how much of our lives are filled up with amusing ourselves by staving off um, big existential questions that we have for ourselves. Not being on the journey. We can endlessly party and miss the whole point of life in many ways. But there's often, I don't know, again, I would just want you to check this obviously with your experience, there's often a hollowness, um, a kind of hollow ring to much of what we do in terms of this amusement, in terms of this distraction that we engaged in. I was always very struck by an entry in the diary of Søren Kierkegaard, uh, the Danish philosopher, who actually said, I went to a party tonight and I was the life and glittering soul of the party. I came home and wanted to shoot myself. It's that sense of hollowness, of engaging in something which isn't quite really there and playing a part, play-acting something. And so the question really, with this inevitability of death, is how much are we utilising, and I said I'd get to confronting you a bit more as we got towards the end of the week, how much are we utilising this precious human condition that we find ourselves in? in the odd occasions in the day <laughs> when we find ourselves in that condition and recognizing it. Because a lot of the time we're a lot of the time we're spinning around through the other realms. We're feeling godlike, you know, everything's okay. It's our day, isn't it? Sometimes we're feeling absolutely okay and other times we're fits of depression. Right at the very pits at the bottom of the cycle. Sometimes we're just driven by our desires, other times we're just driven by our instincts. You know, wanting the food. Wanting, and these are very difficult to override. I mean, let us not again um, have any false um, assumptions about how easy we're, we're going to suddenly come overcome our instincts for certain things. Um, I was again very struck by something in a book that some of you might know by Larry Rosenberg called Breath by Breath, which is a book about um, Anapanasati, about breathing meditation, and in it. And it's, it's a wonderful description because it so often happens, um, and sometimes happens, I'm sure, at our house as well. At times, he said he was sitting there in one of the IMS um, places in the States, there's the Insight Meditation Society places in the States, and he said he'd be having this wonderful meditation, he actually thought he'd reached some jhanic states, you know, states of deep absorption, until the dinner bell went. 
<laughs> and he said he was off of his cushion like a greyhound out of a trap. <laughs> you know, so that's how easy we can delude ourselves into thinking we're making process and then the instincts will suddenly kick in again and, and make us do these things. And so what we're looking at is the way that we spin around. And perhaps one of the exercises even in the day is to look Again, almost in another personal type way in ordinary daily life, to look at the mental condition we're in. Are we just in a position of craving? Not that it's a particular stage we wish to try and eradicate it, but just to see it, to catch ourselves out doing it. You know, if we can, to see if we're kind of just down in the dumps, basically. You know, down in some kind of depressive, self-critical, self-lacerating state. Or are we the opposite end of the spectrum, in that world of the gods. Yeah, everything is right in my world. Until yeah. the next minute comes along. <laughs> uh, or are we any of the other conditions? I'm not going to go through the wall. But as we can see, we spin round psychologically through those varying states. And so it really does become incumbent on us to really watch what's going on in our ordinary conditions. Now, this is in a retreat situation when you're sitting on your cushion, when you're doing your practice, this is a kind of laboratory. This is the way you experiment. This is where you find out things. You sit there and you can observe things because they're coming at you possibly a little slower than they are in daily life. In daily life we often find ourselves in the act of doing something rather than seeing it arise and pass away. We find ourselves in the act of doing something. And so this becomes an opportunity to train ourselves. And that really is what the whole business of cushion sitting and walking meditation and all the rest of it is about. It's a form of training where we begin to train ourselves to be attentive, to bring a quality of attention to life which is often severely lacking and therefore we will spin round in this kind of blind condition, occasionally we will pop up in the human realm. <laughs> occasionally something human will happen to us in the, that we might extend compassion to somebody, we might extend, extend care. But these are what really, in a sense, define us realm, what define that human condition. So, as I say, it becomes a question rather than a given that we are in the human realm. It becomes a question of how often are you in the human realm? How often are you human in a day? And so it becomes a question, as I say, rather than a given. And at the kind of foundation of that humanness and our ability to try and mould our lives in a much more wholesome way becomes something foundational, which is ethics, which I'm going to go on and talk about in a few minutes or so. But let me talk a little bit further about the tentativeness that we bring. Because this attentiveness is to bring us into the now moment. Not a kind of vacuous now, but a now which is full and exciting and dynamic. It's full if we bring our attention to it. And I was saying last night, again I just want to remind you, that in that now moment there is very little room for fear, anxiety and all of the other things. If we are really there, if we are really present, if we're really, in a sense, witness to that moment. 
And in that now moment, there is life. It's not elsewhere, it's not in the past, it's not in the the putative future, because remember this kind of reflection on death is that there might not be a future out there. And hence the reason for practice. There's something Tibetans go on and on about. Any reason actually really becoming so totally aware of death and impermanence is to practice, to, in other words, to make the right decisions because don't put off the right decisions until tomorrow because there might not be tomorrow. Make your decision. Your decision is, in a sense, an affirmation of being, to actually be in this moment. And to inquire into the moment, to come into the moment, to come into the moment with a kind of attention that sometimes, I'm sure, even over a week like this, you're experiencing being in the moment that you often don't when you're outside in ordinary day and night. But to think of sometimes bringing that absorption into, that attentiveness into our ordinary day-to-day existence. Now, I don't want to set the goal too high, I don't want to set the, the, um, the kind of thing too high that we're aspiring to because we're all, in a sense, at this moment in time, we are fallible. And let's appreciate that, and let's, in a sense, enjoy our fallibility. Let's not get miserable about it, let's enjoy our fallibility. The fact that we will fall, no matter what our best intentions are, you know, kind of using Christian terminology, we will fall into patterns of behaviour so easy because they are known. We are also, or dare I say this one, lazy <laughs> too. We can be extremely lazy. Um, an academic friend of mine, for example, and this is a slightly different context, but I think it makes a point. An academic friend of mine said, whenever he has a paper to write for a conference, he said, the house and garden look simply marvellous. Because <laughs> <laughs> he'd rather do anything other than sit down and write this paper for, for the conference. And and I think if you probably get the impression of what I'm talking about here is we'll actually do anything to avoid doing what we really know we need to do at this moment in time. Always put off till tomorrow what you can do today being most of our maxim about this. So it's actually realising of course that actually there isn't this infinite period of time stretching out in front of us. We're not godlike. The gods in a sense can't see an end to it because they have these very long lives in this mythology that I've given you, this kind of cosmology. What we don't have is that. We don't have this infinite amount of time. Even We don't even have somebody telling us, well, it's written into the contract that you will live to 80 years of age, or 70, or 60, or whatever it is. If we even knew that, we could probably structure our lives better. We could probably uh, make choices that we need to make. But we don't. Because life is so uncertain. There is nothing, there is no contract with life which says it will be this length of time at all. As we know, you know, people die in all sorts of unexpected, uncertain circumstances when they never expect to die whatsoever. And we are no different. And it really has to come home to us that we are no different. And that we do not have this infinite period of time stretching out in front of us. 
But now I'm going to keep saying this, almost mantric-like over these last few nights or so, but we will die. That is it. There's going to be an end to this. So, we have to make choices now. We have to bring the quality of our attention into the moment that we live now. And in fact, nirvana isn't some other place. It's not off in some other realm, which kind of I'm going to meet after a long, long journey in the third world. Uh, many of the traditions, and particularly in Mahayana Buddhism, but it's there really even in early Buddhism, many of the traditions will say, Nirvana is here now. It's here right now, in this second, in this moment. You have to realize it. Sansara and Nirvana are not two separate places. They're not two separate divisions. And one isn't over here and one is over there. Nirvana is not some Buddhist heaven you know, that you go to after death. Nirvana is right here, right now. And again, you know, thinking about this in terms of somebody I think who said something very profound about this was T.S. Eliot in The Four Quartets. Many of you might know this quotation from uh, Little Giddings in The Four Quartets. At the end of all our explorations, we'll to return to the same place and know it for the first time. Yeah. And in a sense, that's what we're doing. We're journeying in a way to find out where we are already. That is where we're journeying to. And we can miss that. We can journey off into the fantasies of amusement and the fantasies of distraction. We can always think that we're missing something. Um, And again, another theme which I kind of want to keep pushing to the forefront of your consciousness here is that in order to make this journey, we have to give up. We have to relinquish. And perhaps we have to relinquish the idea that we're missing something elsewhere. You know, there's always a party going on somewhere, as I said the other night. Yeah. There's always something that we can amuse ourselves with going on somewhere. But if we're really, really committed to this particular journey, this particular journey into life, and that's what's important about it. It's not a journey away from life, it's a journey into life. It's a journey into the meanings which life affords, which life will offer, which life will disclose. And these are not in massive kind of what I would call massive revelations about the meaning of everything. It's not like the meaning of life, you know, written large. What is the meaning of life? That kind of question. It's like the meanings, multiple, little, and coming at you very often that we miss them. In our distractedness, in our the very fundamental nature of our distractedness, we miss everything that matters. And so this attention that we bring, this attention of bringing ourselves into the now, is to bring us into a world with replete with meaning and value, which we miss so often. Virginia Woolf actually has a wonderful expression for this um, that she used. It's actually in her diary. She called the moments of being, fundamental moments of being, moments which were. One of the moments she described is very, very simple. The, the, the feeling of cold water on skin on a hot day. That was something that was fundamental of the moment of being. Almost it was an epiphany when that happened. To see colour, to see light, to stand even in the kind of days that we've had 
here whilst we've been going to house, the sound of watch the scudding cloud in the sky, to feel the wind on your skin, to feel the rain, to be fundamentally back and in touch and enmeshed in what you're already enmeshed in, which is life and the world. Most of our distractions take us away from it, and actually rather than give us meaning, most of the distractions strip meaning out of life and become pretty pointless. I'm being fairly brutal, I think, tonight about this, but I think it's worth saying. Most of it becomes pretty pointless, pretty hollow, and has that hollow ring that I talked about earlier on to much of what we do. So the journey is one into life, and I want to say that really again and again and again and kind of impress that on your consciousness. The journey is into life, into life meaning, into the minutiae of what life has to offer. I always think it's terrible, it's a terrible travesty that poor old Einstein's quote got distorted, which is now God is, you know, is the devil is in the detail. Where actually Einstein originally said God was in the detail. Yeah, now, I won't, not, don't necessarily want to use a God concept, but I know what he means. It means that the kind of the real meaning of things is in the details, in the small things of life. It's not written into massive stuff. And we are, if you like, like bees, if we allow ourselves to be. And what I mean by that is we are meaning-garnering things as we flip from thing to thing in life. We can garner our meanings in that way. And of course, death itself will bring an end to that. Will bring an end to that. Totally. And we're going to explore that more another night. Now, in this element of new moving through life, um, this movement through life in a certain way isn't haphazard. It's, in a sense, has to be disciplined. It's not a kind of uncontrolled um, approach to life. And this meaning through discipline is what's important. And the disciplines are the disciplines of ethics, of morality, of living much more consciously in some degree of ethical awareness. And this is absolutely vital and fundamental. In a way, the only freedoms that we can really find are within that. And I was always very struck, I mean, personally, I studied Indian classical music for a long time, and one of the teachers who I studied with when I was learning to play a classical instrument used to always say to me, that, you know, because he was talking about all the rules that surround the playing of something which is an improvisational music, um, but there are rules that govern the improvisation, <laughs> surprisingly enough. And he said, the only freedom is to be found within discipline. Yeah. That is where the only freedom is, it's within discipline. Yeah, it's not a fiat, freedom isn't a fiat to do anything. Freedom is something which is grounded in ethical behaviour. In other words, ethical behaviour behavior is how we are with each other and of course with other beings and how we are with the environment as well. Now the environment wasn't such a major concern for the early Buddhists, A, because they were living much closer to nature 
And also, also, the environment was a very different place for the early Buddhists because it was often a terrifying place as well. You know, there was something in the jungle that might eat you, <laughs> for example. So the environment doesn't figure largely, but certainly our interpersonal relations figures very, very largely in early Buddhist thought. And we get an ethics. But, of course, I don't know if this has ever struck you, that, well, we talked about well we talked about one concept all the way through the week, impermanence. So any ethics that is has to be able to cope with impermanence. And the fact that situations do not remain the same, they change. Yeah. In other words, every situation that you find yourself in is different from the next. There's not one that is the same. They might have similarities, but they are not the same. Also, with a fundamental, which in a sense is an extrapolation of the idea of impermanence, the fundamental idea that, of course, everything is grounded in emptiness. Nothing possesses intrinsic existence, either. Yeah. So, those are just a kind of, just a few things to throw into the equation or the conundrum. Impermanence and emptiness. And so any ethics that's coming out of Buddhism or the Dharma, or the practice of the Dharma, has to be something that's able to cope with those ideas. So, we get something that, again, is very fundamental in, in Buddhism, in Buddhist practice, in the Dharma practice, which is grounding oneself in some kind of forms of ethical training. Some kind of forms of ethical training. Now, that this is so important is evidenced by, and I'm going to make one reference to one text, which is the 5th century commentator called Buddhaghosa. Buddhaghosa was the, in a sense, the founder of Theravada as we know it. Theravada Buddhism is really a product of Buddhaghosa, as much as anything else. He was a South Indian monk working in Sri Lanka who wrote this massive manual, um, and it really is big, it's huge actually, um, called the Visuddhimagga, which means the path to purity, or the path to purification. Um, And it's divided into three sections which is actually traditionally how the Buddhist path is divided up into. The first is sila. Uh, Sila is the practice of morality or ethics. The second part of the path is samadhi, often referred to as bhavana. Samadhi deals with um, calming practices, certain types of meditation practices. It's primarily about meditation practices. And then finally, hapanya. Panya is to do with insight, understanding, really beginning to understand the way things are. So the, the, the strategy, if you like, that we're actually engaged in is one that is threefold, of developing moral, ethical discipline, as well as engaging in meditation practice and at the same time trying to develop understanding. And the teaching itself, the reading of Dharma books, the hearing of Dharma teachings, um, the whole approach which gets you to think about the teaching is part of that inquiry. This was never written out in early Buddhism at all. It was all part of the inquiry. It's only later when kind of scholasticism entered into it. You know, people started debating the Buddhist equivalent of how many angels on the head of a pin type stuff. Um, that there became this disaffection with actually the study of the text and the study of the teachings in general and then the emphasis became on practice. It's more of a reaction against the scholastic movement into place. But from our point of view, the strategy has to be threefold. 
is actually talked about in the text as being threefold in this sense. And I'm going to use the, the Sanskrit and just explain to them for you. The first is Shrutamai Prajna. Shrutamai Prajna is actually the, the insight that comes through hearing the teaching. The second is Bhavanamai Prajna. The insight or the understanding that comes through practicing the teaching. And there's Chintamai Prajna as well. Chintamai Prajna is the insight that comes through thinking it through for yourself. And actually, I've kind of slightly reversed the order here because it actually goes from Shruta to Chinta, from hearing to reasoning to practicing the teaching. So actually, the Buddha didn't say, they say basically, leave your brains at the door of the shrine room or the meditation room. He actually says, bring it in with you. Actually, you need it. You need to analyse what you're doing. You need to be engaged with what you're doing. And practice, in a sense, is the process of verification, the process of actualising the teaching. Nothing else other than that. But, coming back to my main point, my main concern here, my main concern is that absolutely fundamental to the teaching is the development of ethical discipline the development of some way of being in the world in a much more wholesome, ethical way. And that Buddha goes, is very candid about it, because he actually says, forget the other stuff, forget samadhi, forget panya, if you haven't got ethics, you've got nothing. Because the whole of the rest of the edifice is built on being, and being, if you like, more attentive to our ethical, moral behaviour in the world. I always think, actually, as lay people, I mean, having done my time as a monk, um, I was under those kind of disciplines, I always think as lay people we get off very lightly. You know, the average Theravadan monk has 227 rules that they have to keep to it um, in terms of ethical discipline. We have five basic rules. Now these, and I will go on and explore this tomorrow night, but these are really important because they are rules of training. They are not thou shalt and thou shalt not. They're not, in other words, prescriptive. They're meant to be actually tools for ethical inquiry. So we have, as part of the Pali formula in these, and I'm not going to recite it, but the Pali formula goes something like, I undertake the rule of training to refrain from, and then you get what the particular thing is. So take the first precept, I undertake the rule of training to refrain from harming living beings. Yeah. Doesn't say don't kill. That would be much easier, wouldn't it? But actually, it's a lot wider than that. It's a lot more ambiguous. I undertake the rule of training from harming, you know, to refrain from harming living beings. You know, it's, it throws its net a lot wider. Because there are obviously, you know, killing is a pretty major harm. <laughs> But there are a lot more ways that we can harm living beings other than just killing them. Yeah. We are pretty good at it, actually, in our, in our, say, in our way, in our kind of other five realms of existence. We are pretty good at harming ourselves and harming others. Yeah. Sometimes not always directly intentionally, but sometimes because of lack of mindfulness, because of lack of awareness, we do it. Hence, again, the reason for 
is the foregrounding of the development of mindfulness because this is going to add to your ethical awareness, your ethical susceptibility, your ability to actualize a more moral way of behaving. And we have the same in each of the other precepts, a way of opening up things, a way of opening up looking at our forms of behaviour. So I undertake the rule of training to refrain from taking what is not offered or what is not given. Again, it would be far easier, wouldn't it, if the precept said, don't steal. <laughs> and in fact, and often in what I call more popular books on Buddhism, you actually see them um, stated in that way. Don't kill, don't steal, don't conduct sexual misconduct, don't lie, and don't take intoxicants. And that sounds far easier, actually. Yeah. It's much easier to say, oh, right, I won't do that. <laughs> I say that jokingly, because obviously even that's quite difficult. But what the ambiguity, what the, obviously, the lack of, well, distinct saying, don't do this, means in a Buddhist context, is that one has to engage with it, one has to use it in a way of moving through life where you have to become much, much more aware. Because I say harm isn't just killing. Now, hopefully most of us don't engage in that at all. Now, even if we do, <coughs> then you know, it's harming all living creatures. It's not even saying don't kill a human being, it's saying don't harm anything. Yeah. Harm any living being. So the net is tremendously wide in that. When we talk about refraining from taking what is not offered, there are many ways which we appropriate what is not freely given or offered to us. We do it in work situations, we're doing it in other situations. Again, it's opening up that field of ethical inquiry. Let's jump, actually. I'm going to jump over the sexual misconduct for this moment in time. But let's take the other one, which is not about simply not lying. I undertake the rule of training to refrain from false speech. Wow, that's a big one. (laughs) As I often say to groups, and I'm often teaching more specifically the precepts and talking about the precepts, well, is false speech that kind of little twist you give to the tail just to make it a little bit more interesting? Because <laughs> it could be. Yeah. What is false speech? Yeah, is false speech sometimes telling the truth because you're actually using truth to do harm? In other words, breaking the first precept in that case. Or can, in a way, I mean, in fact, you can break down false speech into many other forms because it comes into all forms of speech because it comes harsh and divisive speech and all the forms of speech that we can engage in. I love the one that's it's actual idle chatter. <laughs> to refrain from idle chatter. You know, something, in other words, gossip, basically. Um, about all kinds of things. Yet even our um, attempts at correct speech can be somehow not quite right, not quite ethical. I'll leave you with um, actually just a, a quote from one of Henry James's novels, um, which is The Wings of the Dove. It describes one character in there 
who behaves perfectly in terms of his speech. He, just, he behaves so perfectly in terms of his speech that his politeness is described in this way. He was polite to the point of brutality. Which is actually, again, another way in some senses of being absolutely correct but somehow violating the precepts. So, the image I want to give you, leave you with tonight is that the precepts themselves are not just ethical thou shalt and thou shalt not or in this case particularly thou shalt not what they are are ways of inquiry and actually this is what the Buddhist path is really about and which is why it requires your complete attention because actually there isn't a path and then there's life life is the path yeah? it's not separate it's not compartmentalised and we're actually very good at doing that we're very good at compartmentalising it's what I call church on Sunday syndrome you know, let's make our spiritual practice something we do you know, when we go away on our spiritual holidays when we come on retreat when we do it at our special time of day you know, when we sit and do our meditation or when we do something we like to call spiritual you know, I'm joking about this I'm sending it up slightly to make a point but it's a church on Sunday syndrome. It's a way of hiding off our kind of spiritual life. And I personally don't particularly like the word spiritual a lot of the time, but it, I think we all understand what it means. Our spiritual life is to being something separate from the rest of life. Well, that's just to create a, a form of schizophrenia in our minds. Yeah. There is all the stuff I have to do ordinarily, which is kind of mundane and tedious, and I have to go to work, and I have to earn a living, and I have to do all this stuff, and I have to relate to my family, and I have to do these things, and I have to do that, and then, of course, oh, heaven, I can go away and be spiritual. Well, it's not like that. There should be no separation. And in fact, again, in my early days, I always just remember one certain teacher saying to me, he said, I've observed sometimes with Western people, it says, they seem to put ordinary life sort of down here and spiritual life up there and it becomes unattainable in a way it becomes something we can't really aspire to because it's not actually there as something ordinary in our lives so our spiritual life should be ordinary life our ordinary journey through life and in discovering that ordinary we discover the extraordinary the extraordinary yeah. of life the extraordinary method the beauty of it, the rapture of it, the joy of it. And we only discover that when we come into that now. When we really begin to experience that now. Which you can only do now. I'll finish there. <laughs>